to another episode as per usual and we got an exciting one this time wow so after much anticipation at least on my end i hope yours as well uh we have reached the final episode in our sitchin anunnaki series let's call it so i hope we have a lot to get through but i hope that today will uh, will be the last episode so um, I'm hoping to leave some time at the end as well for some questions to go over things, etc. If you have anything you've been uh, waiting to ask, then uh, now is the time. And as I said, also next week I'm gonna have. Uh, I, I, we'll see how much uh, people are interested. <laughs> There's no uh, need if you don't have anything burning. But I was thinking of doing like a Q and A and also presenting what the next series is uh, going to be like. But uh, enough about that, let's jump right in. Uh, thank you very much in chat, uh, Patient Zero and Rondon, Revised Sociology. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And that's, if there are any problems with the audio or anything, just uh, let me know. I had a little bit of a scare just before we started, but I think we're okay now. So, let's get into it. Um, if you'll remember, at the end of last week's episode, we basically reached that very bizarre war, the War of uh, Nine Kings, 4v5, and Abraham, who sort of played a very significant role in that. And over the last few episodes, as we've uh, discovered Abraham's character and role, we see that it was a rather, he was a rather crucial uh, player in those times. And it seems that it's not by chance that his life coincided with the end of an era, which I hope is what we're going to go over today. Now, for those who have been paying attention, you'll notice that uh, Suma in general and Ur um, have been crumbling over the last few centuries. A lot of unrest. Uh, the empire is sort of falling apart. A lot of the nations and allies that were paying tributes and were respecting Ur's authority as the capital slowly start to uh, resist and change. They stop sending the uh, contributions and the uh, traditional uh, ceremonial um, symbolism that shows that Ur is the chosen city. And this happens, obviously, over the last few centuries with various kings, but it seems to now be reaching some kind of crescendo. Excuse me. Now, on top of this, if you'll recall, uh, Marduk, and more specifically his son, Nabu, his son is in Babylon and the area and Mesopotamia since Marduk is still uh, in exile and he is recruiting people to his father's cause and he is turning these cities away from uh, Ur and the olden uh, ways. And 
if we'll look back to a few episodes before, we see that this is precisely what we were discussing when we were talking about the wars of the Titans, the Titans versus the Olympians, the olden gods versus the new gods. This is the end, or as it were, of that uh, very long conflict. So in one sense or another, the gods and therefore the civilizations and the people have been at war for the last few centuries and with all still crumbling Marduk sees it as his time and in fact uh, it's been the 24 years that were predicted if you remember that Marduk was told uh, by an oracle that he will be uh, allowed to rule after a 24 year uh, wait and now that time has come and so Marduk decides to invade from uh, the west to Mesopotamia. Now the invasion actually goes very well because all and the whole uh, uh, empires in the area are not at their peak and Marduk is able very easily to take the fortresses around. The king in Ur and the soldiers decide to sort of fortify the city to stay there and to focus on trying to defend it from the invaders. And so with this attitude, Marduk and his followers are able to capture most of these cities and they reach all the way to uh, Enlil's city of Eridu. Ah, Hive QA and Inertia, thank you very much for joining. Pleasure to have you here as always. Now, at this point in the story, you'll have to remember that a lot of this information is coming from various different cultures, and Sitchin is doing, again, an incredible work of collecting all of these different pieces of information that corroborate each other and building this whole narrative. And as part of this, there are some, well, all of the events really are have two sides. One of the, you know, each side explaining that what happened or describing it from their own point of view, uh, usually in relation to the god that they worship specifically. And so the tale that comes to us that Sitchin stands by is that Ninurta and along with Nergal are sent to stop the invaders from the west and the fighting between them and between Marduk and Nabu is quite ferocious and uh, during that long those long battles both sides team seem to be deteriorating into more and more animalistic and uh, they in fact start desecrating a lot of these sacred sites and the temples uh, from both sides it appears but the tale that's told is that when they reach Enlil's uh, sacred temple um, it is actually Nergal, who once again is Marduk's younger brother. He is Enki's son, and he is on the side of Ninurta and of the rest of the Anunnaki, basically, against Marduk and his uprising. So although they're brothers, they are now enemies. Nergal was the one who first went to persuade Marduk to step down peacefully and succeeded. And at this point, they are now fighting. And Nergal is the one who destroys Enlil's temple. Now, the reasoning for this isn't entirely clear, but what is suggested by Sitchin, at least, uh, Nergal obviously has much less respect to Enlil's uh, temple than Enlil's son Ninurta, but he does this in an effort to frame Marduk. 
And indeed, when Enlil uh, hurries back to see who has defiled his temple and what has happened, Ninurta immediately uh, faces him and tells him that uh, Nabu and Marduk are the ones who destroyed his temple. And with this, as expected, Enlil becomes enraged and obviously uh, makes it a prime, uh, a, pr a high priority to deal with this Marduk situation. Now, throughout all of this time, well, indeed, uh, we haven't spoken a lot about the Anunnaki's um, politics and the way that they uh, dealt with these things. We've mentioned it a bit in the beginning, but the Anunnaki had a council of 12 that were the leading Anunnaki's, the uh, Pantheon, as it were, and they would convene and decide all of those things. We mentioned it in the beginning a lot with the creation of humans and with the decision of destroying, as it were, humanity with a flood. Those were decisions that happened within the uh, council. And within this council, Enlil is the leader here on earth. He is the uh, chief. And Anu is the king who is the leader in on uh, uh, Nibiru. Sorry. <laughs> so... During this time, there has been an ongoing uh, war council of the Anunnaki with this situation of unrest, the kings um, going after different gods, failing in the attacks. All of this is alongside being sort of managed, as it were, through this council of, uh, of war of the Anunnaki's. And so... At this point, Nergal comes to uh, Marduk and he actually confronts him and he decides uh, to, uh, he asks him to step down from this invasion and from this attack. And Nergal is going uh, by the authority of the Council of the Anunnaki, the Council of War. Marduk, of course, refuses since as he both feels, believes, and has seen, this is his moment. He's waited thousands, literally thousands of years for this. And at this point, there's no stopping him. He's already succeeded and the war is continuing and he is still capturing uh, city after city, although the Anunnaki are fighting back as well. And so this is all sort of going on at the same time. And Nergal, Nergal uh, comes to him to attempt some kind of negotiation, is refused. And at this point, he returns to the Council of War. Now, this is sort of, as it were, one of the turning points in the story. We've heard mention of these weapons before, but at this point, Nergal uh, insists that they must use what he calls and Sitchin's translated as uh, the awesome weapons. Now, We've actually mentioned them very, very briefly long, long ago because the seeds for this whole um, plot twist that's coming, what happened to humanity's fate and the Anunnaki, the seeds were sown a long, long time ago. And if you'll recall, the first Anunnaki to ever arrive on Earth was, in fact, it wasn't Enki, but it was Alalu, who had escaped Nibiru and was the first one to even consider uh, arriving at Earth. Now, when he came, he came in a spaceship, which he stole. And in that spaceship, as was uh, customary, there were nuclear missiles. Now, he had used one of those missiles, it's uh, explained, um, to get through the asteroid belt. And he sort of blew a hole through the asteroid belt, and that's how he got through. 
but there were still other warheads on the spaceship and as soon as he landed on earth uh not when he landed sorry but when enki landed um they decided to bury the weapons and hide them somewhere in order to well prevent anything happening and so we skip forward a few thousand years and at this point nergal is suggesting that they should use these same nuclear weapons in order to stop both Marduk and Nabu, and he is quite insistent on killing these gods in the cities. Now, as is uh, per usual with our story, our so-called hero, Enki, is the first one to stand up and to adamantly refuse the use of such weapons, and Nergal doesn't uh, take this very well. Now, in fact, at this point, Enki, who has sort of in, been inclined to this position from the beginning, once again suggests to allow Marduk to have his time and to have Babylon as the next ruling uh, kingdom. But uh, he and Nergal actually get to quite a fierce confrontation, and in the end of it, he demands that Nergal should leave the council. And so Nergal leaves in you know, quite a huff, and he decides to go to where the weapons are buried and to go and use them nonetheless. And so he starts the process, which is they are rather well hidden. Not everyone knows. And he starts asking around and getting some information. And this arouses the uh, attention of one of the nearby gods who is actually... Um, I wouldn't say loyal and ally, but a friend of Marduk's. And he goes to Marduk and tells him that he's seen Nergal uh, preparing or going after the uh, nuclear weapons and decides to uh, to warn him, basically. At this point, Marduk obviously gets uh, quite worried and he goes to his father Enki to tell him the news. Enki is shocked and he returns to the Council of War and there he is met with something he didn't expect, which is that the rest of the gods has already, had already suspected that that was what Nergal would go and do. And in fact, as much as Enki was opposed, it seems that the some of the Anunnaki, Enlil and Ninurta, are very much in favor of using the weapons. Now, as this is a big decision and it's uh, two opposing sides, the decision actually goes up to Anu, and Anu decrees that they shall use the weapons with a few uh, conditions, so as not to simply uh, reap havoc and uncontrollable, but to actually use them specifically. And it is decided that Ninurta should go to Nergal and uh, tell him about the decision and to make sure that it happens as is uh, required. And so Ninurta leaves and goes to where Nergal is, finds him uh, already priming the weapons before he had received the, uh, the confirmation, as it were. Now, at this point, there's a very long discussion that happens between the two. And I won't go into too much detail, but it is interesting to note that one of the arguments that Nergal, um, sorry, that Ninurta tries to persuade excuse me, Nergal to move away is, I'm sorry, just one moment. Sorry about that. Something in my throat. 
one of the arguments that Ninurta uses to persuade Nergal is actually very similar to something we find in the Old Testament. And so at this point, we can actually recall uh, a very famous story from the Old Testament, which if you'll uh, have a guess as to what could have been this nuclear disaster, as it were, it's what we have come to know as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the fire and brimstone in the description of Sodom and Gomorrah have obviously been uh, talked about much and uh, various scholars and different people have uh, offered solutions as to what it may have been and whether it was natural, etc., etc., etc. But Sitchin's evidence is very, very persuasive, as always, in my opinion, um, proving that a few of these, uh, to, to draw just one simple uh, difference between this and the flood, um, in this case, it's clear from the Bible that the event was triggered, was, was controlled, and could be postponed. And there's a point where um, the angels who have arrived to the city, who had visited Abraham before, go to save Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they talk to Lot, they tell him to get as far away as possible and to take his family. And Lot says that he is afraid that he won't make it in time. And so the uh, angels tell him that he shouldn't be afraid and they will wait until he has reached the uh, farther cities and only then will they, uh, will they let the uh, havoc wreak. And so this is a very different approach from what we remember when Enki spoke to his son saying in seven days the waters will come and there's nothing we can do to stop it. You have to be prepared by then. So I won't go into any of the archaeological evidence and I'm not here again to persuade anyone by anything. But we're going to continue with Sitchin's narrative. And in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, for those who don't remember, Abraham is approached by the three angels and is told to leave uh, the city. And so is uh, his uh, nephew, Lot. And at this point, Abraham enters, uh, not at this point, but a bit for, uh, later, Abraham enters into a discussion with God, with the Lord, claiming what if there are 50 righteous people within Sodom and Gomorrah, would you destroy the 50 with the, uh, with the uh, not righteous? And this discussion has become rather famous. This is actually echoed, or I should say the original, with the discussion between Ninurta and Nergal regarding the uh, the nuclear missiles. And so basically, Ninurta comes to him and tells Nergal that Anu's terms are that only the approved cities can be targeted, that the Anunnaki and the Ijiji of those cities will be warned ahead of time, and that the humans of those cities will be uh, forewarned as well, will be spared. Now, at first, Nergal doesn't have any of it, and he is really uh, rather upset. But again, Ninurta sort of enters this long persuasion, uh, giving all of these examples. And in the end, Nergal agrees to all of the um, accounts, except that he doesn't agree to warn Marduk, or Nabu, or their followers, which is sort of not what the agreement was, 
But um, in the end, with some more pleading, Nergal agrees to destroy only the cities where Naboo may be and the spaceport and not the other cities. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Patient Zero said, when you try to get God not to engage gross generalizations, and he just says, but I'm right. So I like that. Um, <laughs> and again, this story gets a very different feel. And this, in, in, in the, the Jewish Bible, this discussion between Abraham and God is very out of the ordinary. When Abraham, when God came to Abraham and told him, told him to kill his only son, he agreed to do it without hesitation for, for, for no apparent reason. But when God is threatening to kill these strangers, you know, um, because they are all evil, uh, then suddenly Abraham feels the right to plea for their lives. So it's just interesting when you think about, again, how much, how different these stories are when we're considering different characters, not God and the human who worships him, but these two gods who are trying to prevent some sort of uh, nuclear holocaust. And so, indeed, Nergal finally agrees uh, to the terms. And uh, it, it turns out from the text that Ninurta himself doesn't... Um, ah, sorry, I missed one small point. One other f uh, point that Nergal said was that he wished to destroy the spaceport in Nepal. Now, uh, sorry, in uh, the, the crossing point. Now, this comes as a rather shock to everyone, but the reason is that he wants to prevent Marduk from being able to take over the uh, spaceport. And in his mind, after all of the wars that have been fought over it, um, it sort of needs to be taken out of the picture, as it were. And for some reason or another, I mean, uh, Ninurta, upon hearing this condition, is rather shocked. But he consults and, and, and relays it to Enlil and Anu, and they both agree to these terms. So it seems that everyone is really quite ready for a change, and the war seems to have taken its toll on everyone. And so it happens. And uh, they each take, as it were, one missile, one for the spaceport, one for the city where Naboo was last uh, reported in. And uh, Nergal fires the first nuclear missile into the spaceport in the mountain. And Ninurta thereafter fires the missile into the uh, city. And as a matter of fact, it turns out that Naboo manages to escape and to reach one of the other islands. But at this point, there's a rather unfortunate and apparently unforeseen uh, element that nobody sort of saw coming. And that is, after this explosion, which happens uh, very near to the west, where they are and where Marduk's uh, invasion began, the explosion obviously decimates the area immediately around it. But then there starts to uh, come this wind, and it's described in all of these lamentations as an evil wind, and it starts spreading across the land. And it starts carrying uh, radiation particles, radioactive particles, eastward. And the descriptions, and there are many of them that uh, Sitchin goes over, which we won't go into too many. But the descriptions are of, as you would expect, uh, something like this to, uh, to be. 
um, all of these cities where both the Anunnaki were and the humans who were worshipping them and were on the same side began to be afflicted by this uh, invisible death that was coming without warning. And it seems that there was very little that they could do to stop it, even the Anunnaki, as it were. And so when uh, this wind started moving across, a lot of the different cities started to be in absolute uh, chaos. And the Anunnaki not only didn't have time uh, to warn the people, but they actually often didn't even have time themselves to get everything ready. And so I'd like to read just one very quick description um, from uh, Uruk, which was one of the cities. And I'm just going to read the quotation. I'm not going to post it up this time, and I think it'll be easy enough to follow. In Uruk, the populace was left in chaos, leaderless and helpless. Mob panic was brought about in Uruk. Its good sense was distorted. The shrines were broken in, and their contents were smashed as the people asked questions. Why did the god's benevolent eye look away? Who caused such worry and lamentation? But their questions remained unanswered, and when the evil storm passed over, the people were piled up in heaps. A hush settled over Uruk like a cloak. Now it seems that this description of an eerie silence where everything sort of stopped uh, is a description again from thousands and thousands of years ago that is very hard to match when we think unless we get to some form of radiation, where radiation is truly this, uh, as it were, wipes everything out, all forms of life, and this deathly silence seems to follow. Another short description that I'd like to read comes from Enki. Now, at this point, obviously, all of the gods, all of the Anunnaki, have been leaving their cities, some staying for more time and closer to the uh, dangerous point, some even getting afflicted slightly by the radiation in some descriptions, but all of them obviously leave eventually. And Enki, as he is leaving, um, decides only to leave far enough to get out of the evil wind's way, but near enough to stay and see its fate. And so it's described... Its lord stays outside his city. Father Enki stayed outside for the fate of his harmed city. He wept with bitter tears. Many of his loyal subjects follow him, camping on its outskirts. For a day and a night they watch the storm put, it hand, put its hand on Eridu. So this description, which uh, I won't go into, but if you are interested, there's obviously a lot of different lamentations that were written, both during the time that it was happening in Ur, and indeed even hundreds and uh, a long time later by other people who were sort of remembering in the name of. Um, this event seems to be a very important event in human history that until now might have been seen as sort of different uh, um unconnected events in human history that now we get this glimpse into Sitchin's narrative of how these stories might fit in together. Okay, so let's see, 11.30, do we have any questions? Ah, Anu nice, Anunnaki, sorry, I couldn't read that. Um, 
it uh, just to make sure it all sounds okay still because I have a little bit of a delay but as long as it sounds okay out there then we are okay to continue so let me know if there are any problems so at this point I actually I mean whether or not we believe Sitchin's narrative I was interested in investigating a little bit more because I couldn't quite understand how there could be such a nuclear event um, not that long ago you know uh, five six thousand years ago as it were and still no four thousand years ago and not to have any kind of evidence for it as it were now I did a little bit of research into this and I'm in no way an expert obviously but I was quite surprised to discover that in Hiroshima the radiation levels have actually returned to normal already within what was it uh, 70 years more or less 80 years something like that um so i was very surprised to find that but it turns out that yeah when when i think the natural environment is doing what it uh, can to stabilize the situation the radiation levels can actually decrease rather quick more quickly than i thought and if uh, i think for those of you who have been here from the part from the uh, from the first episode i think we mentioned the fungi that eat radiation and actually uh, clean the the pollution uh, the radiation sorry um, and so in the discussions that Sitchin uh, brings later it seems that it took seven years until people could start uh, going back to live in these places and to uh, settle them again but that was and this is what's described with the help of Enki and his technology so it seems, although, again, Sitchin doesn't go into much detail, and this isn't something that's very widely spoken about in the past, it seems that there was more help with the Anunnaki's technology to restore the situation and to lower the radiation levels, which we can sort of understand since our technology today is certainly a lot more capable than it was when uh, Hiroshima happened and no one really knew what to expect. So once again, as is the case with other things, Sitchin mentions that prior to the 1940s, um, no one reading these descriptions from ancient history would be able to suspect something like a nuclear explosion. Um, it was only until we reached that same technology ourselves that we could start making sense of these descriptions, this evil wind that invisibly swept across the land and brought utter desolation none of the form of explosions or fire that the descriptions of all of these people are very very similar it's you know silent very quick and just leaves a trail of dead bodies animals and humans and plant life uh, behind it so this description and I hope I uh, <laughs> I do it justice, but this was sort of the end of the Sumerian civilization and the Sumerian Empire itself. Um, it was a long period of deterioration, and obviously we don't know what would have happened uh, had this not been the case. But nevertheless, this was the sort of final uh, nail in the coffin on that great civilization. And so, obviously, when the Anunnaki realize what has happened and what has taken place, they are both shocked and they are uh, 
very much regretting the decisions that led to that point. And something very strange happens if you think about um, history and you're probably wondering why we haven't spoken about it a little bit more. At this point, Anu and Enlil um, decide to <laughs> do the unthinkable, as it were, and they decide to let Marduk uh, rule for the coming age, as it were. And this is what introduces us to the great civilization of Babylon that we knew, the uh, empire that has probably become one of the most famous empires in uh, the ancient Middle East and uh, East, I should say. And so this is the beginning of the Babylonian Empire, a new era for humanity. And after many, many thousands of years and the 24-year wait for his uh, um, fortune and fate, uh, Marduk finally arrives at uh, supreme leadership over the area. And so, okay, um, let me see. Mm-hmm. Ah, Patient Zero says it'd be pretty crazy if man invents time travel in the future and it turns out it was us doing the God thing. Ah, that's actually a very interesting theory that I heard about. I'll keep that uh, comment for later. I'm going to highlight it so I don't forget because that's an interesting thought, but we'll get to that in a moment. So at this point, I'd just like to say this is sort of where I decided to stop in the Sitchin narrative. Now, this is the end of the third book. I do feel it's necessary to relay the information. Sitchin's next book, um, The Lost Realms, is about the South American continent and the various civilizations, ancient civilizations that arose there. And it turns in the, uh, in the story, it turns out that the gods who left Mesopotamia in that time, some of them, arrived at South America and began began establishing uh, civilizations there as well. I decided not to go into any of that, which is a whole huge deal in and of itself, and it's very interesting. But I felt that this very momentous occasion was the point that I'd like to reach in our story. And I think there's, I see a sort of arc from the creation of humanity, which our narrative starts a bit before to realize how we got there, but from the creation to the second destruction, as it were, there seems to be this arc that has really shaped humanity for the thousands of years since. And as the creation of humanity being a very important, um, you know, shift, I think, in the way we think about ourselves and about our environment and in general, I think a very interesting narrative to consider when we see the human situation today. I feel that this nuclear holocaust that happened that really did shake the old Eastern world back then is uh, equally important for us to uh, think about because we obviously know about the age of nuclear armament and what it's done to our civilization, to our world, and we are so fortunate to be at a place today where it's not a real I don't think it's a real threat that people feel because of this whole uh, you know mutual deterrent like situation that no one would start it because everyone would lose but nonetheless it seems that for me at least this story where 4,000 5,000 years ago 
an ongoing war over supremacy, one kind or another, eventually led to uh, two brothers, each wanting to kill each other and one going to the extreme of killing everything around it. it just feels, unfortunately to me, like a mindset that I can easily uh, imagine in today's world. And we see many powerful leaders with nuclear capabilities being ever so eager to, uh, you know, to even consider those things as an option. And so this arc that I see with um, the Anunnaki and with humanity, in my mind, that point of violence did two things. One, it left an imprint on the human psyche in general and the way that we perceive this violence and the method of attaining uh, power through violence. And that was something I think that has stayed with us to a certain extent even today, which is surprising considering how often it has proven to be uh, uh, unsustainable in the long run. I'm not going to even talk about special situations, but in general, stability is more easily achieved in times of peace than in times of war. But regardless of my personal political opinions, the Anunnaki's position is what I think is more interesting to think about. And that is that the Anunnaki have gone through this very important change and shift in their relationship from uh, creators to um, sort of protectors and uh, caretakers to not uh, equals, but um, as it were, you know, compatible enough for procreation. And this is an increasing uh, change that seems to have happened to what we saw in the later civilizations of worship bordering on, you know, demanding self-sacrifice of their soldiers and priests in order to worship them. And finally, we arrive at utter decimation and complete destruction in the name of supremacy one way or another. And this seems to be a turning point for the Anunnaki in much the same way that when the flood happened, um, when the deluge occurred, then the Anunnaki and Enlil specifically, uh, you know, became softer or saw the humans in a different light and regretted what had happened. At this point, it seems the Anunnaki have decided to take a step back from their, as it were, meddling in human affairs. Now, this doesn't mean that they reach that level of disappearance that we obviously see in our lands today, and we're going to be approaching that subject later on in the podcast, but it does seem to be a turning point where the Anunnaki feel the responsibility that they hold for the welfare of humanity and of Earth to be much more uh, real and with real-world consequences. And as a result of this, some of them at least seem to be a little more careful and cautious with the big decisions that they take. And so this shift seems to again push even more control into the hands of the human leaders, the kings, and it's not long after this that the uh, ruling changes from the actual Anunnaki to uh, the kings of the humans. And in this shift, there is this whole changing of the guard once more, as it were, 
between the Anunnaki and the humans, only it seems that the humans are still lacking that responsibility that the Anunnaki are now privy to. And when this happens, when the change happens, a lot of the kings, the human kings, seem to be even uh, more vicious, even more ruthless towards their fellow humans. And sadly, this once again is a rather common phenomenon in human nature where uh, often those who are sort of closer, as it were, uh, will be more, you know, vicious, will feel as though they are actually more distant than complete strangers. Not always, clearly, but in times of desperate measures and when people have been pushed, I'll, I'll give a very quick <laughs> example that I always come to, but the Judenrat in Germany, for those who don't know, was a sort of a group of Jews who were appointed to look after the other Jews. And so this proved to be much more effective than using, you know, Nazis or Germans in general. Um, the same was actually in uh, Egypt. I'm not sure why all my examples are from Jews. There's probably a reason. But this is a well-known tactic. They use, you know, the same people in order to attack them. And this makes it a much harder for them to deal with it. So, wow, that was a lot of rambling, excuse me. But we have reached the end of our narrative. I'm very excited to say thank you so much to everyone who's been with me until now and even just from now. Um, oh, I see a few people in chat. Adsakli, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, or ADS Ackley. Thank you very much for joining, Mariano. Uh, Alien Honey, oh, great to see you. Thank you. And, oh, I keep forgetting, Gecko. What is it? Gecko, yes. Thank you very much to all of you for joining me. Uh, once again, I will say that next, not next week, next week is going to be sort of a Q&A and we'll see it's going to be a sort of restructuring a little bit. But starting from the week after, we are technically entering the series about Drunvalo Melchizedek. Once again, if you want to read up a little bit before or see what I'm talking about, the guy behind uh, Spirit Science, the very famous YouTube animation about uh, spirituality, is all based on a book by Drunvalo Melchizedek. And we're going to be talking about him and his uh, theories, let's call them. However, um, before we enter any of the really heavy stuff, as it were, it's, I, I feel the need for us to go over a few episodes where we're just going to talk about some concepts, sort of a dictionary, as it were. A, so that when I say these terms, we all are in agreement as to what I'm talking about and what it means. And B, more importantly, a lot of these terms, well, I don't know who the audience will be, but some of them might be, let's say, a little uh, out of the ordinary, shall we call it? I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, so you're probably already quite on board with the uh, some of the unbelievable. But I feel that it's necessary to start this at the same point with everyone. And so, what do you call it? In Hebrew, you call it like to, to straighten a line. It's, I don't remember what you call it in English, but where we're all starting from the same point. So, things like soul and consciousness and the difference or the relationship between them and you know the afterlife death birth reality you know all of these very very um i think sometimes broad concepts 
Not that we're going to completely and absolutely define everything, as we know we can't do that, but we are going to offer the, you know, the suggestion of what I mean when I say this word so that we can all understand it. Now, I'd, I'd be interested actually to hear from Chad, if you're there, what, uh, you know, when it comes to spirituality versus, let's say, rationality, as it were, what sort of numbers, what people define themselves? Do you find yourselves being more rational, more, what is it, emotional, intuitive? I'm not sure what the uh, proper terminology is, but which side of the scale? Because I personally, as you'll all know, since I've mentioned it many, many times, I came from uh, complete rationality, uh, you know, atheism and reductionism, not believing in anything that isn't part of the five senses, basically. And I've come a long way from there. Uh, today, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I believe in a lot more than I don't believe, as it were. So before we start getting into this, really, one moment, excuse me. Sorry about this. My throat is really giving me some trouble. I apologize. Before we get into this very heavily, we're going to go over some of these concepts and ideas and see how can it be. So, for example, an aura. I'll just give this as a quick taster for what's coming ahead. Um, some of you may uh, know what it means, have an opinion on what it means, have never heard of it. But an aura seems to be something that's very hard for many people to exactly articulate what it is. And for me, as I went through this journey, it was very, very important to always be able to tie in the rational side and to find the patterns and the connections between the two. And so, just for example, the aura is nothing more than the electromagnetic pulse that our body generates. Uh, as we all, I think, know, we have a few electrical sources in our body. The brain is one, the heart is another. And any electrical source emanates a magnetic field along with an electrical field. This is what electromagnetism basically is. And so the aura is simply the frequency of the magnetic and electromagnetic uh, field that's generated by these bodies. So that that sort of thing is what I'm talking about. Um, we're going to go over a few of these terms. I don't know how many episodes I'll do. I'll see how it goes and I'll see how you feel and if you guys are getting anything out of it or if it's sort of a little bit uh, beneath you, as it were. And then we're basically going to start with the book from page one. And that's also where he describes a lot of these things and explains a lot of these terms in his own words. So it's going to be all building up towards it, obviously. Okay, I see a few things in chat that I've missed. I'm just going to go back a little bit. Ah, Mariano. Um, Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Ah, we didn't even talk about Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Look at the size of the lion. Yes, well, there's and there's a lot of ancient mytholog uh, mythological demigods, etc., who were, yeah, portrayed v in various sizes. And in fact, there's the place in Jordan that was, that has these huge uh, archways. Ah, uh, Patient Zero says, rational agnostic. I think that's one of the best answers I can imagine. Nice. I very much appreciate agnosticism, is that how you say it? Um, and rationality is always important. I try to always be rational. Uh, 
And then again, intuition is also important, but definitely a bit of both. Let's see. Ah, Rondon, Robert Sepe. Hmm. Uh, I don't think I've heard of him. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm going to check it out later. Atlantean. What does it say? Nice. Atlantis. We're actually going to be talking. Uh, Drunvalo Malkizedek is the one who covers um, Atlantis uh, more, more than this is sort of the... I would say competing because they're not even competing, but as it were, an alternative narrative to human history. And in my mind, the two are actually uh, very, very close together. But uh, we'll get to that later on, as it were. Uh, Revised Sociology says, my take on the distinction between the rational and spiritual, I can't summarize it. <laughs> this is, I mean, you know, it's hard enough for me to try and talk about it for an hour. So to ask you to summarize it in one sentence. But your answer has told me exactly what I wanted to know, which is, you know, what your position on it is. And if that's your answer, that's that's a very good place to be. I'm, I, I feel very much the same. Uh, yeah, these, these subjects are a little too big, you know, too early in the morning, too late at night, I don't know. But for me personally, these are the subjects that really invigorate me and get me, you know, really the, the thinking that's where it happens. Gosh, I can't express myself. Because um, I can see in chat as well. Ronnie he actually puts forth a great hypothesis about the Atlantean people and where they went. Ah, I'd be very happy to hear. By the way, Sitchin also does mention Atlantis, um, but he doesn't go into much depth about it. He talks about it since it's sort of mentioned in the histories as this mythological place, but he doesn't portray it from a first person's perspective, only stories about Mariana Yorath. Theologian, theologian, right? That's how I pronounced. Excellent. Oh wow! So this is uh, this is all very very good news. Ah, I remember that there was a comment I wanted to refer to. Patient zero. Yes, it'd be crazy, pretty crazy if man invents time travel. Ah, so this I'm just going to say very quickly because it's not a very important point. But I first heard of this theory a, f a few, oh, I can't remember, about maybe ten years ago, something like that, and. Until then, this idea was always uh, us and them, the Anunnaki versus humanity, you know, aliens in general, evil spirits. It's always these two sides um, fighting each other, and one is sort of trying to enslave the other. And then came, for me, uh, the Eastern mysticism, theology, etc., and that was all, well, part of it was all <laughs> uh, oneness, and everything is the same, and everything is one, and it's all different sides of the same thing, and you can't uh, differentiate anything and these two theories seem to be very uh, incompatible as it were either one or the other but then when I heard about this theory of time travel which I don't think it's so much invents at that point personally I believe that time is more an experience than an event meaning if time is relative as I think we sort of see and accept then time itself is the motion of the universe. But that it is not something that we determine. We only determine the speed with which we experience it. So even if we're talking about something like the speed of light, um, we don't experience things at the speed of light, though our body may work close to that speed. We experience things on a very personal level. And that experience is what we call time, as it were. So in my mind, at least, this... A uh, notion of inventing a machine that can bend it is very different to reaching a level of consciousness where the perception of time changes. 
and whether this is very small, uh, uncontrollable moments such as people seeing into the past or seeing into the future, dreams or awake, or whether it's much uh, more substantial as someone who is capable to capable of moving their uh, entire being throughout this, you know, time space continuum, uh, is is an interesting topic that I we won't get into right now. I don't think we have enough time. But it's certainly an interesting theory to think that man evolves to such a point where he is able to then return and interact with a past, less evolved uh, self. And this, this cycle, I don't know, something about that cycle for me feels like it's an effective, efficient way of doing things. You know, it's a little bit like that theory that there is only one electron in the universe and it's traveling through space-time, uh, you know, not linearly, so it can be in two different places. So it's just one electron interacting with itself and that is all the creation. These theories of this sort of bending in on itself through the element of time, through the uh, dimension of time, as it were, and then interacting with itself in that way and causing new new things to happen as it were that seems to be very similar to the way the universe acts if we look at the beginning you know how did we become well let's let's talk about the big bang itself you know the most accepted as it were uh, theory um, we started as this you know very very condensed matter and then it expanded and then it started to cool and as it started to cool the different parts started to mix with each other and to create something new from the mixture. And that process basically led to where we are today, as it were. So obviously billions of years and lots of different uh, changes. But that theory seems to me, the pattern of that theory seems to remind this view of an electron or an evolved human being uh, consciousness going back and interacting with you know the past version of itself something else in order to create something new which is this evolved human being so i don't know for me personally it's just an interesting theory but i don't know too much about it and i i've seen uh, quite a few um people claim to be time travelers but i've never seen uh one claiming to be both a time traveler and you know a human and the uh, the anunnaki specifically um, but it'd be interesting, be very interesting nonetheless. Anyway, okay, we've got six minutes left. Excellent. So let me just check in chat. Is that everything? Wonderful. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, series with Sitchin. Um, I know, you know, I'll be honest, of the four series, in my mind, this is the least, you know, entertaining, as it were. It's much more practical. It's much more, um, you know rational as it were academic it's something that i felt was necessary as the first part in case just in case there might be someone out there who's listening at some point in the future who has never heard about these things uh doesn't see how any of this could be possible you know how could all of this have happened without us ever knowing about it sitchin i think is one of the best places to start if you're if you're into you know the research and stuff some people are much more open to this information and have a much easier time than i did but for me to get into it after so many years of rejecting anything that could be this you know startling and different 
um, Sitchin was such an important part of entering. And again, as I developed in my understanding and researched it more and more, I most definitely moved past Sitchin's ideas and his narratives because they were simply um, not too narrow, but sort of simpler. They weren't meant to give an answer to everything, the things that we can know and the things that we can't. They were meant to prove academically to everyone that this hypothesis was hypothesis was a legitimate one and should be taken seriously. And although <laughs> he definitely has not yet received the credit, but he, I think, did an amazing job of making it as serious and academic as could possibly be. Drumvelo Malkizedek, on the other hand, uh, as I've mentioned before, claims that all of his information came to him through um, interactions. What do you call it? With, uh, you know, what do you call it when there's a transmission of information? I can't remember the term. But all of his uh, knowledge came to him through these transmissions, as it were. So that's a very different <laughs> method. And I felt it better to start with Sitchin, move on to the other, let's say, more esoteric, um, because that might be a better uh, transition, for some at least. Yeah, a vision. Yeah, uh, it wasn't even a vision because it was actually for him, in his descriptions, it was a real interaction for long hours. He was taken as his apprentice. It's a fascinating story. Again, I really implore anyone who wants to know more, get into it. Um, I even have the PDF if you'd like me to send it personally. His book, which is like two-part, is really interesting, the story that he tells of how he came into it. I'm not going to go into that, obviously, because I don't think that's what's crucial for me to get out right now. What we're going to go over is the actual information, as it were, the knowledge as to how reality works and what humans are here to do, etc. Ah, and a quick side note just before I forget, I wanted to mention this week, uh, in case you haven't heard, because there's a lot going on, and channeling, thank you, Patient Zero. No, channeling, no, 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 it wasn't channeling either. Channeling is when you give your body to be the vessel, whether it's writing, speaking, uh, whatever the method. But that's usually when you either lose control or let um, give, give control over, as it were. And often when the people are channeling, they're not aware of what they're channeling until after. Um, there have been many famous people, but in his descriptions of Drumvelo, it's sort of uh, a vision, really. It's just that I think a vision is sort of closing your eyes and having this one-sided look into what's going on, whereas with his descriptions, it's really a conversation where this person is sitting next to him and explaining things and touching reality. You know, if we'd call it a hallucination, that it was an then it was an auditory and visual hallucination. Um, obviously, we don't call it that, but uh, that's what it was. Oral, yeah, oral law is like, uh, yeah, how it's passed under. The thing is that he's, you know, technically uh, wasn't really there. The god, as it were, in question, if I didn't mention it, was Thoth. But anyway, I can see that my time is running out, so I'm going to have to leave you for now. But thank you very, very much for joining. Hope to see you all next week with the new series. Again, if you have any questions about Sitchin, about what we've been talking about, then make sure you prepare them for next week. And if not, then we will have a uh, special surprise regardless. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you very much and uh, have a wonderful week.